Escape your everyday with out-of-this-world action. From the gritty apocalypse of the Walking Dead universe to the cyberpunk realm of The Watch and the criminal underbelly of Gangs of London, AMC Plus is more than entertaining. It's epic. Feel all the chills and thrills with Shudder's halfway to Halloween month. Experience Shudder's biggest month of horror featuring a new season of Creepshow and new movie premieres every week. All available ad-free and on demand. Start your free trial today at amcplus.com. I do, I do a bit in my show about this, you know, just like without getting too much away. It's like trying to imagine a kind of dystopian future where I host an episode of Jeremy Kyle, but it's like the running man. <laughs> and the whole idea is just like Boris Johnson, take his shit off him and put him in Pilton in Edinburgh. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And just be like, aye. get to the top for there. Aye, aye. Fucker. <laughs> Welcome to episode 35 of Blethered. I'm Sean McDonald and my guest is Darren Loki McGarvey. Darren is a Scottish author, rapper, recording hip-hop artist, social commentator and media figure. Born in Glasgow in the mid-1980s, he grew up in Pollock and he talks to me about his chaotic home life, drug and alcohol abuse as a young man throughout a somewhat haphazard period and how he lacked direction at times. Fast forward to 2018 and Darren is receiving the prestigious Orwell Prize for his critically acclaimed book Poverty Safari, Understanding the Anger of Britain's Underclass. This was quickly followed by an avalanche of job offers and a soon vastly increased financial wealth. We talk about what happened in between those two periods, reaching that career peak, highs and lows, character shaping experiences and defining chapters in his life. I loved it. He's a really engaging guy, very Glaswegian, so for me it was no different to speaking to one of my pals, except far more captivating and, I have to be honest, educational. No offence to any of my pals listening, by the way. We discuss addiction. Discuss? We discuss addiction, the role alcohol and drugs play in your mental state, financial insecurity, whether you're rich or skint. We talk about the type of social sophistication that only the working class could ever possess, we talk about talking to Tories and also Darren's Edinburgh Fringe show. He gives a glimpse into what to expect from the show, including a description of Boris Johnson being dropped into a rough area of Scotland and having everything taken from him while being challenged to reach the top of society on his own merits. I don't think he could. The show's had rave reviews and if you're off to the Fringe, it's on at the Stands Newtown Theatre until the 25th of August. He said rave reviews and you'll hear the man himself letting you know what you'll see and hear from him. For tickets, just Google Darren McGarvey Fringe 2019 and you're smart enough to figure out the rest. If you're a fan of Blethered, you'll enjoy this episode because Darren is a sharp, honest and funny character. He'll entertain you and I think he'll make you reflect on your own behaviours and force you to look at yourself in a more honest way without even realising it. I certainly did. As always, the conversation will continue over in Flipchat. It's the app I always talk about. The community's grown rapidly and people are talking about all the things covered in the episodes so far. So if you've been affected by any of these things that we've spoke about in previous episodes, it's worth having a wee look and getting involved. Just search Flipchat on your app store and once it's installed, search Blethered or click on the link in my Twitter bio and it'll take you straight to it. If you enjoy this episode... 
please feel free to share it on social media or even just by sending it to somebody who might enjoy it. The song at the end of the episode is dedicated to the memory of Gregor Gibbons. Thank you to voice family and friends and I'm really sorry for what you're going through. Final word, thanks for listening. Things are going great and I couldn't do it without you or the brilliant guests who are so generous with their time. So thanks very much. Hope you enjoy. So as I've explained in the intro, I'm thrilled and delighted to be joined by Darren Loki McGarvey. Darren, how you doing, mate? I'm good, how are you? Um, a wee bit stressed, but I've had a wee bit of an epiphany as I was running up there stressed and getting really aggressive and angry. You might see where I'm taking that, so I'll, I'll bring that back up Aye, cool. as we come on, so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. I've heard you in a couple of podcasts, so Drunk Therapy and Rebel City 2 terrific podcast how did you enjoy that talk to the lads oh it was brilliant it was really it's a nice format I'm I'm a wee bit getting too used to dealing with mainstream journalists where you've got a few minutes and you've got to hit all your marks and sometimes you get hurt a question that's not really the thing you want to talk about Uh so actually just having an hour really to sort of elaborate on things is a real uh, pleasure because I had uh, when I'd listened to them I came away feeling really educated and there's a couple of things you, you've talked about a lot of socio-political things a lot of cultural things um, that hit a lot of points with me one uh, anybody who's listened to this previously will know how I feel towards our Tory friends uh-huh. I, I don't I don't fucking miss right when I'm saying what I think about them mm. and after listening to you on Rebel City I came away thinking alright I could probably sit down and have a conversation with one mm. what I would like to talk about is kind of your life Obviously, we're here to talk about your show. You've got your Edinburgh Fringe show coming up. We'll get a, we'll probably start on that. Yeah. But I'd like to sort of interview you in your life, how things shaped you, how you came to be. Because I had a, I had a pal of mine on, who had a similar background to you, grew up in Pollock, mm. and went in a very positive direction. I'd like to find out how that happens. He couldn't really, t- he couldn't articulate why he felt he kind of went that way. Um, where, where some others don't. Well, exactly, I. And what is it? Is it like? Is it an inherent thing? Is it? Is there something that's just innate within you, or other circumstantial things that can, can, can get you there? But if you don't mind, for it, let's just say whoever's listening doesn't know much about you. Okay. Can we give you a bit of background on your early life? Of course. So I grew up in Pollock, south side of Glasgow. It was the eighties, early nineties. So the community was really run down. It was sort of at the top or bottom of all the wrong lists. Hmm. for health and crime um, and I think the Conservative government had been in power at that point for maybe about 15 years or something so obviously the big policy that they brought in was closing down a lot of the industries Hmm. and uh, we lived in a community that really the, the industries were the kind of lifeblood Maybe not directly, mm-hmm. but a lot of the people worked in different places. And when you just kind of take the heart out of a community or a whole area of the country, then it can be difficult for people to find their feet. So people turn to drugs, people turn to alcohol, uh, and and I think that that was what the scheme became known for, really. So my background was growing up in not necessarily like a bad home, but a lot of dysfunction early on. My mum was a heavy drinker. She would behave quite mental sometimes, and uh, and and really that that shaped me in the sense that 
a lot of the things that I would have challenges with later in my life, you know, relationships, alcoholism, managing my stress, uh, all comes from back then when I was kind of, all the signals around me were telling me, you've got a right to be afraid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but saying that, a lot of the negative stuff is what gets reported, but, you know, my dad's a musician, he raised us on his own. My family were all very supportive. We were always encouraged to be creative, to, to take part in our community. Uh, you know, racist chat and sexist chat and all that wasn't really kind of allowed in the house. Mm-hmm. Although, although maybe looking back, actually it was quite a kind of patriarchal setup for my granny and granddad at least. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but at the same time, most people have a kind of it's a, it's, a, it's light and shade when they're grown up. What, what why was I able to kind of like come through? I think it was circumstances. A lot of the people that I meet when I go and work in the prisons or young people that I know or even thinking of other folk that in my family who have no done so great so mm-hmm. far, it's usually because they don't even have one relationship right. that's steady and has continuity. Like, if you've got somebody in your corner that you can turn to who's on your side and sees the world for your point of view and is validating you and, and understands you intimately, then then that can be the thing that allows you just to get a, enough of a foothold that when adversity does hit, you don't completely spiral out of mm-hmm. control. And so for me, that was being different people at different points in my life, and that's what I see is absent in the people who end up in prison, you know, again and again and again, or people who end up on hardcore drugs. Mm-hmm. I had uh, I'd listened to you in Russell Brand's podcast, which I think a lot of people will have, and something I'd never realised or considered when you spoke about people communicating through violence because violence was the only form of communication or the most prevalent form of communication that they saw and it made me it immediately changed the way I retrospectively look at school for example, I went to school with a lot of people for like Milton, Balsall, Springburn, Lamhill kind of what you would class as deprived areas and I used to look at people who would their immediate form of communication would be through violence and I think you're a pure prick mm. that was how I saw it because I was fortunate enough to grow up in a very nice sort of stable environment did you go through that period of, that was your form of communication I wasn't a violent person I don't think I was inclined to be I mean most young men from a housing scheme will be called into some kind of violence at mm. some point um, very rarely would I be the person going looking for a fight or starting a fight but it's interesting what you say there about the you, you're watching somebody else being violent, so they're communicating something to you, so you're interpreting violence as well, even right. if you're not participating in it. So it's like we develop these radars to know when should I cross the street, right. when should I make sure that I don't look too kind of sheepish but not too confident, what's the right balance to strike when you're dealing with somebody with a fragile ego who's a wee bit unhinged. So actually all of these interactions make us very socially sophisticated in a way that's not really recognised by mainstream society. If you were to take somebody like Boris Johnson and put him into a community where we grew up and take away his bodyguards <laughs> and take away his car and take away his money, how socially mobile would he be? I fantasise about stuff like that, by the way. Well, I, I, I did a bit in my show about this, you know, just like without getting too much away. It's like trying to imagine a kind of dystopian future where I host an episode of Jeremy Kyle but it's like the running man 
And the whole idea is just like Boris Johnson take his shit off him and put him in Pilton in Edinburgh. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And just be like, aye. get to the top for there, aye, aye. fucker. And aye. just shouting at him the whole way, telling him he's shit. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, you know, and, and it's not just the violence. It's it's the ducking and diving. It's the it's the trying to get ahead in life while having a lot more kind of drag forces on yeah. your mental health and uh, and where your mobility, where you can go. Uh, but still trying to compete with the middle class kids that you mm-hmm. come in, in contact with from time to time so a lot of the skills that we learn in those communities are not really recognised as intelligence but they are intelligence they are ways of understanding the world of interpreting it of taking the right action to ensure your survival uh, or ensure your well-being and all of that stuff requires thinking even if we don't realise that's what we're doing mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's you just kind of. I went in a kind of wee bit of a, a different train of thought there, and it sort of highlighted the whole, you know, the middle class and upper class um, thing we hear of. We'll just work harder. You know, I worked hard and I applied myself at school, and as you say, drag forces. I've never heard that before. Mm. You know, people having to compete with all these other things. It's like before you're even getting to the school gates, you're dealing with eight, nine, ten things. It's, a, it's a, like quicksand. Aye. I've heard it described as water, but I think it's more like quicksand. The whole key to surviving quicksand is you need to stay completely still. So you can't move in any direction, mm-hmm. otherwise you might become further submerged. So the middle class and upper class conversation about poverty always focuses on things like the poverty of aspiration, right? So this is the assumption that people from lower class backgrounds just don't want to be CEOs or just don't want to be, you know, uh, in those high-flying professions, doctors and surgeons and politicians. Actually, the data shows that when you ask children from every social background what they want to be when they're young, they all say the same things. So they all want to be football players or they all want to be doctors or, Mm -hmm. you know, they have this vision of being a professional high flyer in their chosen field. It's when they get older that the aspiration is kind of beaten out of some of the kids from lower class backgrounds and this is not just done through the social environments or dysfunction at home or no seeing examples of people from your community ascending this is also done in the institutions that like education mm-hmm. where your career advisor's job really was to kind of rein you in a wee bit right. if you went in saying I want to be an actor and they'd be like well have you thought about maybe being a joiner have you thought about maybe being a plumber and it's like those are cool professions mm-hmm. But if they're not trying to align you with the thing that you think you want today, that you're passionate about, straight away, you're creating a conflict within a person where they start thinking, well, if they don't think I can do it, maybe I can, and maybe it's just a pipe dream. And that, you know, I would love to go back and see careers advisors now, do you know aye, what I mean? Aye. And like, maybe it'd be, be pretty petty of me, but I wonder how many kids from my school ended up aiming lower because of what somebody they respect told them they, they should do. Um, so the, it's not that there's a lack of aspiration it's that aspiration gets constrained by the kind of gravitational field of poverty and all the things that that entails cultural forces, economic forces, social forces they all sort of they just serve to keep you in one spot uh, so you're using all your energy by the time you're an adult just to keep your head above water above the sand and to take a risk, i.e. going to university. I mean, if you're a single mother with two kids and the, uh, and the dad's not really playing much at all, he's not mm-hmm. stepping up, or he's dead, then you can't just make that decision to go to uni. You've got childcare to think about. You've got 
uh, how are you going to get a boot? You know what I mean? Like you might Aye. need to get a car, so you're going to need to get driving lessons. And whereas in the middle class communities, you know, I was in London, a guy I walked past a bike bicycle shop, and the guy was coming out with a bike, and he literally looked like he just decided to walk in and buy a bike, and then he came out with it. <laughs> no, like because he must have just thought fuck this public transport Aye. so he, he was able to kind of conceive of that thought because he said that behaviour model to him so he knows cyclists in his community the shop was there so the means to make the purchase are there he's got the money to do it without having to think can I pay it up And so he's able to have a thought and then uh-huh. just act on it and it's different further down the food chain you go That's a, that is a real mindset thing isn't it I would say I've, I live a good life I, I, I do things I enjoy but to me the thought of just going in and sort of you know, just spur of the moment buying something like that to me is fucking mental. Mm. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah. I would probably think about it for ages. I'd walk in. My mum and that makes you otherwise about spending and stuff, but I, I would walk in and I'd be like, nah, that, I just can't conceive of that. 400, 500, 600 quid. Because it was just, you know that way you can just tell, you can just tell when somebody's got a bike and it's the first time they've handled it. It's <laughs> just something, it's like when you see somebody having to draw a fag for the first time, aye, you kind of want to fix their horn and be aye, like, they look a bit like Sandra D for Greece. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Aye. It's a bit like that and I just saw him and it just sparked that thought. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Because I was like, he's in a position where he can just decide to do something and he can do it because all these other circumstantial factors and then the mm-hmm. fact that he's got the means to do it and so he's he's no got the same gravity bearing down on him when he's trying to be social and mobile uh, what was you mentioned about talk, you know the sort of repression that would come for careers advisors mm. did you ever have any dealings with careers advisors that you can remember and did you express any desire to go into the arts aye I, 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 I was one of the best drama students in my school um, drama was a subject I excelled at, including the written work, including the critical analysis of plays, mm-hmm. Arthur Miller, Brecht, um, which is the kind of the cornerstones of your kind of higher education in school. Right. Um, I did advanced higher drama. I got an A for the performance aspect. Then my mom passed away. I didn't complete the advanced higher. Um, so my teachers all knew mm-hmm. that I had a talent. Um, but I remember having a conversation with careers advice once, and it was just kind of. I was lucky because I sort of already in my mind was quite set on what I was going to do and if other people didn't think I could do it then it was because they didn't have the vision yeah. to see um, I wasn't that bothered you know I think I, I think I could have applied myself to anything whatever the thing was you know I was you know in, in, in school there's always the kind of tap three at every subject yeah. and then there's the next tier you know in most subjects I was in the next tier so I wasn't quite as naturally talented, say, in PE mm-hmm. or art or English as these people were. But if I worked hard, it could bump me up. Yeah. You know what I mean? But when it came to drama, I was one in the top tier. So that was what I was really passionate about and interested in. And not just in school. I was active in my community for a young age. I started a theatre group when I was 16 and really noising up a lot of the local infrastructure and third sector people mm-hmm. and just being like here look we're starting our own thing because we don't like the things that you're doing do you know what I mean mm-hmm. you want us to come and kid on more trees and all that and we're all dealing with madness in our life aye, aye. so we're going to write a play about um, abuse and fucking uh, poverty and it's going to be like shocking to all you do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and and you know but then as, as, as I progressed through my teenage years a lot of the kind of you know I started drinking Remember my granny gave me painkillers one time for 
uh, to help me sleep. I think it was like the day my ma died, because I couldn't sleep. <clears throat> and I just remember getting a real dunt off them, do you know what I mean? My granny, the doctor was God to my granny, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She believed everything the doctor gave her. So she she was trying to help me. But within a week, I'm dipping the medicine cabinet, and I'm going to school, and fucking, you know, and then I'm oh, drinking yeah, yeah. on top of it, and going out to hip-hop gigs, and fucking starting Rammies and all that, and, <clears throat> you know... Chaos started to creep in, so all the all the stuff that early on in my life it started to find expression in my white, no necessarily wild behaviour. Uh-huh. Although if I was to watch footage of myself back then, I'd probably think you're actually just a wee unpleasant prick. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In some ways, but obviously every every Ned, every troublemaker has a very rich context <laughs> yeah. tapestry of why they behave the way they uh-huh. do. Do you know what I mean? So it was it was that was kind of I left Pollock. 17, 18, moved into a supported accommodation project. I was in a toxic relationship, do you know what I mean, at the mm-hmm. time, but it was the first proper relationship I'd had. I just wanted to be loved. I was insecure, I couldn't handle it, do you know what I mean? And, and I think my partner had a lot of problems as well, so mm-hmm. we just played off each other's worst fucking instincts, really, and just made the relationship a nightmare for both of us. But we, we couldn't see ourselves outside the relationship. It was like two half circles completing each other, yeah. but just no able to stop tugging each other in the wrong directions. I have supported accommodation for three years, which is fully staffed. The staff get you on benefits, they get you, make sure you're getting everything you're entitled to. Is that like the Blue Triangle project? Aye, it was called the Fire Station project back then, right. so, and it was in Mary Hill, okay. Queen's Cross Housing Association. So, uh, before I knew it, I went for working, you know, I worked in a bingo hall, I was a kitchen porter, I did a, I did some uh, kind of self-employed stuff, music mm-hmm. workshops and that, next thing I'm on high rate DLA, do you know what I mean, care and mobility, I'm getting my rent paid for me and all that, uh, but I'm also on my own for the first time ever, mm-hmm. and that's when I started drinking, um, and straight away unmanageability, you know, that money that I had, you're talking, you're talking. For a kid my age, hundreds of pounds a month. Mailing that, I couldn't manage it. I couldn't manage it. I was still always ticking things. And Did it burn a hole in your pocket? Just wasn't able to manage. I wasn't able to go, let me deal with these things first, you know. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to be ultimately responsible. But I hadn't really been, not necessarily that I hadn't been shown. My dad was big on responsibility. Mm-hmm. My dad was big on pay your debts before you buy your bird floors. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You owe me dig money before you, you take take such and such out for a, a dinner. I'm like, you talk about, you know what I mean, prick, do you know what I mean? <laughs> As you do. Yeah. But then because I left house so abruptly, I think yeah. that education got interrupted. Yeah. And I was sort of on my own, learning the ways of the street and all that, you know what I mean? Where, where really it's Russian roulette, the quality of the education you're going to receive. <laughs> Whoever you're going to encounter. Aye, so really I was just kind of improvising. Luckily they didn't kick me out of the supported accommodation, so I was there for three years. Uh, left, went and stayed in Govan Hill for a couple of years. I just was getting mad with it all the time. I remember going and buying pills with the intention to sell them one night at a party and just taking that many that I lost them all in my own house, waking up the next morning and they're everywhere down the side of the couches. They're fucking, and I'm just, I'm just get, picking them all up, you know what I mean, and just gubbing them and just I'm ready to go again, you know. Like, you don't get hangovers at that age, just mm-hmm. fucking keep on going. But then two days later, I'm going into the doctor, like, ah, I think I'm schizophrenic, do you know what I mean? I, I'm hallucinating, I'm 
I'm, uh, I, f- I feel like I want to die. I'm, I'm hearing voices and shit, and, and so I'm going through this rabbit hole of a mental health journey with all these professionals, mm-hmm. and I've not even thought to tell them I'm drunk every night. I'm right. fucking high all the time. So they were trying to diagnose me with mental health problems, and fucking really, what was going on was I was bombarding myself with chemicals. I was living totally out of balance. I was dealing with just having the endorphins to draw and without taking drugs and I wasn't eating well and I wasn't fit in any way and eventually that's when I was like fuck I need to stop I need to get something done about this there's a bit of a mental health epidemic right now Mm. and what we're seeing um, with a lot of people casual drug use at the weekend and I believe that what we're seeing with a lot of male suicides and it's female as well and I would like to point out for anybody listening that I, I don't mean to be flippant or blase about something that might have happened to somebody that you know I say it with the utmost care I suppose mm. I mean how much of what you went through because you've went from start to finish how much of that you know getting high all the time serotonin at fucking rock bottom mm. no natural endorphins you know being depressed on a come down for four days and then going I know what will make me feel better I'll get back on it aye you feel good and then you plummet again aye. do you see you know, and a lot of the, and obviously a lot of it's behind closed doors. But do you see in that sort of social fabric what's happening now? Basically, what you went through. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of. I mean, I guess every suicide is high profile in the sense that they usually get some sort of news coverage, mm-hmm. right? But there's been kind of high profile suicides around, you know, uh, the guy for the prodigy, the guy for frightened rabbit. Um, there's been even Robin Williams to an extent, although there were other issues at play there but a common theme that you see and then I, cut, I think it was a couple of guy for uh, fucking Soundgarden what's his name again Chris Cornell right aye, aye. the other guy for fucking the other band the guy Benji Madden. aye 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 and, and actually when when you actually dig into it you know mm-hmm. like if you actually look into it if you look at what they were doing in their lives mm-hmm. then often Alcohol and drugs is playing a role there. Yeah. And what's really, I find frustrating, and it's difficult because you can't really tell people who have experienced suicide via somebody they love yeah. to be like, if you're going to talk publicly about mental health, you might want to include all the other factors that contributed to the poor mental health if your key objective is to raise awareness. Uh-huh. There's just too much of suicide is a mystery. Open up just tell people how you feel and it's like well nah see if you're in the pub every other night and you're drinking uh-huh. you might forget actually that that's a depressant yeah. and that that's dragging you down and down uh-huh. and down and isolating you further I totally agree um, I've noticed in myself over the last maybe year or so that booze is making me feel worse and worse uh, like uh, just the other day there so probably I, I would like to point this out as well or take the opportunity because I wanted to point or the opportunity to say it in the right setting in the right context so I was in London for a couple of days with work stuff. I was doing later in the sort of radio station. I was doing interviews. I was meeting people. Things were going great. I had a night out. I got a mad TV presenter on a headlock, and it was just a laugh. It was just class. I came up the road, went to transmit. Never slept. Barely ate. I was in the sun running about. I was boozing. I was having the time of my life. Repeated it on Sunday. Got up the road Monday, five in the morning. Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And again, I'm not saying this flippantly. I can understand why people do themselves in. Aye. I had this almighty crash. Like I, I thought I was going to chuck the podcast. I'm like, I'm not capable of doing that. 
uh, this is pish, that's pish. Um, I, People don't like me. I'm, I'm worthless. And, and I mean, and it was pals having a laugh. Like, oh, he said this, and he said that, and I was like, Jesus aye. Christ! And it was like just this mad crash, and I went, I'm taking a wee month off the drink. I think I, I can see that link there. Aye, no, absolutely, mate. And see, I mean, going to transmit, obviously, that's that's a, that's a kind of that's a special event. Right. So most people are going to feel a bit shit if they've been on it two days in the trot. Right. But I mean, people that have been using alcohol for years to cope with mental health problems, they they're feeling like that all the time. Oh. So they're feeling they're, they're, maybe the only wee bit of pleasure they get is 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 when they've got other people around them. Uh-huh. Um, but then it's when they're back on the rain, you know. Then they forget that the the thing an addiction's always trying to do is hide mm-hmm. for view. So an addiction will actually hide behind a mental health problem, mm-hmm. even if it means you take your own life, because the addiction doesn't want to be brought out into the light. Mm-hmm. So often, and I've done this myself, when I was struggling, and people who were in recovery would be like. You know, have you thought about the role that the alcohol and drugs is having in your mental health? And I would be thinking, oh no, I've got a unique fucking mental landscape. Do you know what I mean? Nobody can understand it. It's me. I'm, I'm one of these mysterious artists that's just tortured. Do you know what I mean? And buying into all that bullshit that's fed out by mediocre writers and mediocre artists with drunk audiences. Do you know what I mean? And really, uh, what was going on was my fucking mental health problem is really just a mirage because the addiction will keep hiding behind it even if I kill myself uh-huh. and often the people around me won't even know it you know what I mean they'll just be like ah, mental health problems and let's start a mental health awareness campaign but let's keep out all the details uh-huh. about what happened before the person died and uh, and I don't know if people do that out of shame I don't know if they do it because they don't understand I don't know if they do it out of privacy but if you're going to speak on mental health mm-hmm. if you're going to talk about it we need to talk about the fact that a lot of it's driven by uh, alcohol and substance abuse that's that's how this podcast was kind of born partly I kind of tweeted and it picked up a bit of traction and I thought that's hitting there a lot of people I was saying like it's great that we've you know, as a generation in this point in time we've removed that stigma of talking about it, you know, it's okay and I thought, but let's actually get into the minutiae of what is causing it because until we actually you know, you could go you could look and go uh, a lot of rain keeps getting in this house all the time. You know, this is always soaking and it's like why? Like cause one of the tiles is fucking loose, like fix it, deal with it and sort of address that problem. I hope that's something that people take into consideration. And again, if you're listening um, I, we've spoken are we haven't we and you, you feel fucking down all the time give yourself a fighting chance stop taking gear at the weekend and stop boozing all the time Aye. like that's not to say you can't take coke or you can't drink but Aye. don't be doing it all the time and if you find that you try to take it now and again and you always end up taking more than you mean to and Aye. this keeps happening it might be time for you to tell somebody that you've got a problem and sometimes feeling better is just about being honest with somebody about what's going on. Aye. I mean, I've talked a wee bit about in the past about, uh, and I continue to eh, whenever it feels relevant. I've turned to so many things to get away from how I feel. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whether it's drugs, alcohol. I've, I've been relapsing all year because uh, I've been struggling to deal with how my life is changing all of a sudden and all these new pressures that's coming into uh-huh. play. And I've got two young kids and family to support and a lot of stuff I'm doing is public eye now as well so there's this additional kind of fear because all the insecurities you have socially as a human being they're magnified when 
people are reading your work every week or when you know that you know a lot of people are going to read or come and see your shit when you finish writing it uh. and so like it's been a lot to take in then on the other hand everybody you meet a lot of the time because you're kind of like uh, you're, you're sort of man of the moment for a while mm-hmm. everybody's dead nice to you and dead pleasant so you're not getting that honest feedback you're not getting that authentic interaction you need to just really get your bearings in life you know and then you're in a hotel by yourself and it's fucking just get the porn on, do you know what I mean? And just really kind of just... And I'm using that, not necessarily just for the gratification that's associated with it, but also because of the zombie fucking state that a person is in when they're looking through it all. Yeah, aye. There's just so many issues. With everything that you could possibly use, even fitness, if you overdo it in fitness, out of a sense of, you know, with the wrong intention, you're going to get injuries. You know, I've got a shoulder injury, you know, mm. if you fucking try to just lift too much... Because I'm like, I'm just focused on the numbers and I'm not focused on the form. Uh-huh. I'm not focused on the grace. Uh-huh. I'm focused on the fucking lift. Because my bird will fancy me, man. Uh-huh. Big uh-huh. muscles. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I'm just caught up in all these brang ideas about what it is to be a guy and what I, what what's my partner looking for in me. I would assume my partner wants me to be in the room with the family and be present and no feel that my head's somewhere else, thinking about work, thinking about this, sitting on Twitter, and they're all the things I do when I'm not mentally right, you know what I mean? And I think a lot of people out there are the same. That's a really interesting analogy that's paralleled with real life. If you are f- too focused on what you have as like a perceived achievement, and so you've said um, the higher the number, and let's just say for somebody it's the higher the wealth, or the more money they're making. If you're doing that, you're going to strain yourself and put yourself out, and that's how you're fucked. But if you take something lower and you're doing it in the correct manner, in a way that you enjoy, then you're actually going to become more built, you'll be stronger, you'll be fitter, and then you'll kind of get, get there bit by bit. I feel like that's one of the something that's symptomatic of modern-day life that people see, and I'd like to talk to you about through social media comparison culture, but they see other people and what they perceive to be their wealth or what they possess or the, you know, the wealth they've accumulated materially or otherwise, and they think, well, I have to get there and I need to get there tomorrow. It's a a sort of instantaneous gratification. Instead of realising that what they've got probably took them quite a while. They might have started before you, they might have had other factors that helped them. Can I go at your own pace? How much do you think that need for... Because you you spoke about Rebel City. There's a whole industry that's set up to capitalise on that misconception that you can get the secret ingredient or the secret answer or the shortcut you've got it all over YouTube, you've got it all over Instagram, do you know what I mean? Want to, want to get a six-pack two days, do you know what I mean? Aye. Fucking anorexia.com, do you know what I mean? It's just like, it's feeding us so much shit, and there's people that get a lot of social and cultural and financial capital out of it, because people want to get for A to B mm-hmm. at, at quantum speed. And actually, most people who make a success of their life, unless it's kind of mad, crazy, overnight success, like winning the fucking lottery right. or winning X Factor, again, they're shortcuts, and most of the people who do that, they're not happy. Nah. I always thought, I don't want to win the lottery. I never played the lottery, because I thought, if I make my money, if, I've, if, if I'm going to have a fortune, I want to do it gradually so I know how to handle it. Uh-huh. rather than just have the money uh, your personal development and accumulation of wealth have to go in synchronicity with each other don't they or else you're fucked well I mean even just this year you know what I mean like I'm, I'm impulsive you know like I fit the description of personality disorders and all that when I'm out of fucking whack with myself you know uh-huh. so my impulsivity is up I find it harder to make rational decisions in moments of stress um, and, and I've found this year because 
at first the book came out and then, and then I got another book deal and then uh, I got a TV work coming in and then I was getting paid up front for a lot of stuff as well mm-hmm. and advances on things and uh, it just seemed like money's coming from everywhere you know it's more money in a few months than I've ever seen in my life uh-huh. so what did I do first thing I do is like decide to get married you know what I mean and then decide to get double glazing windies mm-hmm. because our house is a death trap and then I decide to be dead generous with it do you know what I mean and plug financial holes for other people and yeah. a lot of that's good and positive but at the same time then the work slows down you can't physically keep working at that rate to generate that kind of money Aye. jobs take a while to formulate and pitch yeah. the work you know there's a whole kind of financial year in all the industries that I'm working in and so money slows down and then suddenly you're like ah, where did it all go Aye. do you know what I mean and suddenly you're in the hamster wheel again a financial stress mm-hmm. and I'm sitting like that there's just no way I, I, I have to look at my thinking and behaviour again. You know what I mean? I've been in a mad whirlwind. But it's the same behaviour. Wouldn't Even without the money, it would have been the same. Do you know what I mean? You know, why, why have one toffee crisp when you can have the four of them? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Why go for one drink? You know, Why have one bottle of bucket when you can buy a box and just drink all weekend? It's just mad fucking zero to 60 in two seconds flat thinking. No ability really to savour a moment, to enjoy a moment, to be present in a moment, Aye. to have that moment you fantasise about when you're working hard towards something. When do we ever arrive there? I know. I was I had I was talking to someone about this recently. Have you read The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle? No, no. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant, and it's basically for anybody that's not read it, it's um, Eckhart Tolle only talks about all that you have isn't it? it's a very it's a very simplified concept but he goes into detail well keeping it very simplistic in his explanation and he's saying that all that there is is now and that the past doesn't exist and it's never existed in the future and that kind of thing he's like you may as well just enjoy this because you're here and you're in this moment and he's like we're all constantly being like when I get there I'll be happy and if at this point even at this point in my life let's say professionally well what I'm doing with this where three months ago I would have been like, oh my god, if I can get to that point, that'll be amazing. But I get to this point, and I'm like, all right, I need to get further. So such and such is at that I point. It's it's good to be aspirational, and that's a very positive thing. But you shouldn't let it detract for for right at this moment. And that kind of goes back to people with that pursuit of material wealth. I'll be happy when I get to this. I'll be happy when I hit this amount. And it's like, mate, you never be fucking happy because numbers are infinite. You're never going to get there, so you may as well. No. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Yourself. My happiest moments, and I'm kind of mere taking stock of this now, as I'm realising a lot of the things I thought would have made me happy are kind of temporary. Yeah. Um, you know, being publicly noted, uh, writing something a successful thing as a writer is a brilliant thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so many books are published every year, and nobody knows about them, and a lot of them are better than my book. <laughs> um, and then actually, so then you start thinking, well, what is it that's going to, where, where did I derive that sense of, uh, no pleasure, but satisfaction, contentment? And it's wee daft things, you know, like my missus just coming on, giving me a kiss for no reason. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, I've had to stop it. Sometimes I would ask her, you know, what's that for? Because it's like, in my head, 
somebody has to have an agenda. <laughs> yeah, if a yeah. guy show me affection for no reason, you know what I mean? <laughs> I think she must be feeling guilty about something, what she done, do you know aye, what I mean? Aye. And uh, or silly things like when um, when uh, my daughter, you know, my daughter and my son, when they sort of just initiate affection, uh-huh. you know, rather than me, come here, needs a cuddle, they'll just come out of me, or holding my wee lash and she's just got her head in my shoulder. And, and I kind of, I hold those moments now. Mm-hmm. If they're happening, I become aware that that's what's going on. So often you're in a hurry, you're like, need, need time for affection, you know what I mean? Like, get the man into bed so I can fucking get on with my work. Uh-huh. And then I'm realising, actually, those are the moments. Those are the moments where, it, that no matter what happens in your life, nobody can take them away for you. Uh-huh. You know, nobody can take them. It just, nothing can get in the way of them. It's just, they're just so pure. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if fucking, you know what I mean? You've got fucking right cops turn up at your door in the morning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they're coming to find all the gear you've got stashed. <laughs> Even if you get through in jail, Nobody can take that. Nobody right. can take that love. Nobody can take those connections or those moments. It's something that a phrase I like is all that you have is your soul and things that you have kind of imprinted on them, like the moments of affection and love. And it kind of points to the fact that connection and love, either given, give, given, I would say gifts there, mm. given or received, uh, are the only true things that make you wealthy, I would say. Because you say, I could take. You could have all your work taken off. You could be put in jail. You could have every material possession you've ever had. Past. It's funny how being put t- in jail comes to mind when you come for a certain kind of background. I know. I know. I know. I, it's like I remember. Like I, I don't know about you. Like I've had like a couple of dealings with the police oh, through the years. I've right, been jailed, right? and they weren't they very pleasant, right? But see, since especially if you've been through the court system, then. Anytime you see a police motor, anytime you see a police, there's this fucking... I remember standing at my window and looking out because it was a police motor in the car park outside my house and just I'm talking myself into it for so long. Right. I was just like, some cunt is coming up here to start this door. <laughs> and honestly, it gone through all the things that it possibly could have been. And uh, it's you just, could have done. Just, <laughs> it must be bad if you're a right bam that's always getting jailed. Pure stress. You must just be like, <laughs> even when I hear people say, like, I fucking hate a police, I'm like, why? What the fuck have they done to you? But then I'm like, I kind of I kinda get it because you just see them as a complete enemy. So I'm the watered down version of that because when I was at school, I'd shit myself and I saw the head teacher walking past because I had a, I just appeared litany of things that I knew I'd done. Harm, relatively harmless but I'm like shit and your stomach would churn that way your body Gonna goes all uh, interesting thing I read an article you said in the Guardian that uh, as like an interview you gave in the Guardian I think after Poverty Safari was out and you said you'd had a bit of your booze relapse Aye. and you ended up in the jail and you were sitting listening to two guys talking about a drug deal they were going to make when they got out and you were judging them and Aye. then realised we're in the exact same situation I'm there because I've been drinking and taking drugs Aye. So the whole reason that I ended up, what was it that happened? Basically, somebody from my past, right? I, you know, it, it was trauma or shock or surprise that I thought I'd processed through my two or three years of sobriety. Uh-huh. And then when I drank, this was the first thing that came out, right? Now, regardless of what that person or my perception of who that person is or what they are or what they've done, uh, what I ended up doing to deal with was totally uncalled for. Do you right. know what I mean? So. I didn't even really think it through at the time. I just thought, I'm going to use my social media platform to intimidate this person. Right, right. Um, now in my head, I thought, this person deserves it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or I didn't, first of all, think what I was doing was illegal. 
Right. I didn't contemplate it because I'm off my nut because I'm drunk. Right. right. But I'd had a breakdown before I drank. Do you know right, what I mean? Right. Like, uh, so it was basically ending up. You're getting taken to the hospital. They're trying to make sure that you don't need section. So in my head, I'm sitting in the hospital for that long that I start thinking I need a drink. So my aim then becomes about getting him to get my bottle of wine that I've left in the house right. when the police came to get me. So I just start telling the doctors everything that they want to hear. Do you know what I mean? All oh, right, fucking blah blah blah. And when you've been, when you've seen a CPN four or five times because mm-hmm. all the different cries for help, suicide attempts, or health problems that you've had through your drinking career, then you know how to navigate that and produce what sort of outcome you might want, unless right. you are actually off your nut, you right. know. I was off my nut so much I couldn't even see it so I just wanted to get out the minute they declared me cognizant mm-hmm. they just slapped the handcuffs on me you know yeah. and that was it so I didn't even didn't even dawn on me that I was about to be arrested I just thought the police were kind of hanging about with me to make sure I was alright <laughs> and then I was in the cell uh, I was in the cell for the night you know you get took to court in the morning um, it's a weird experience waking up and realising what's actually been happening do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and then I was in the prison I was in the like lower tier of the sheriff court so it's it's all still kind of Victorian Aye. era shit down there it's really designed to be as unpleasant as possible which I think is fair because mm-hmm. I certainly remember thinking I don't want to be here again yep. but I was in the cell with two other guys and they were talking about Valium and they were going to score this they were going to do that and just like they they, they you know, this was a weekend, a weekly occurrence to them. You know, this was just a formality. Mm-hmm. Going into the court, and uh, and I remember kind of, and, and, and in the moment, I'm doing everything I need to do to ingratiate myself and be cool and no look, no strike that balance yeah, between yeah, being yeah. quiet and no being took took for a mug. Um, but at the same time, I became aware I was judging them. I was like, imagine you just can't still hang about scoring drugs when you are in here look at you and then I was like ah, it's like I just came up out of myself and observed uh-huh. myself and I was like check your ego McGarvey <laughs> you know what I mean check your ego you're here with them you're on the same level mm-hmm. like so if they're scum or they're stupid what the fuck are you because you know better because uh, yeah. you've been away for this lifestyle for years and and it just it really kind of hammers home how easy it is to fall into those delusions about who you are and what you deserve and and, and, and no be able to see the reality of your life, do you know what I mean? You see, when I read that, it kind of put me in a wee bit of train of thought and I'm actually not entirely sure how I arrived at it and I think it might just be the fact that although that we may see ourselves as completely different and alien to people that we actually have a lot more in common than we, than we believe. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that I th- see myself to have a lot in common with a hardline Tory voter. Mm-hmm. But after listening to you in Rebel City, I started to think, right, maybe there is a wee bit more common ground than I previously realised, because I don't think many people can say, oh, no, I'm completely, I'm completely left-wing, I'm completely, uh, I'm completely right, or I'm completely centre, you know, you may, I think, what, what do you call that graph that's like the mm. cross? Aye, aye, so it's the kind of liberal, it's the liberal conservative axis. Ah, I see, aye, the axis, I see where you are, and I would say that the majority of mine would be to the left but there'll be somewhere I would be far right in terms of when it comes to crime or when it comes to other things because, you know, having young kids in my family, you want to see serious crime severely well, punished. So then that makes me immediately have this realisation of I'm not as fucking 
Marxist as I thought I was. So th- this, this is interesting, and the reason I, I the reason um sort of take the positions that I take with regards to try to take each individual voter mm-hmm. who's voting conservative on their merits mm-hmm. is because first of all I don't want to make big assumptions about what ultimately is the news the majority of the voting population Aye. right because if I'm making big assumptions but big broad brush strokes and generalising then it pushes me further away from the truth mm-hmm. the truth might be messier it might be more complicated but I don't want to end up in this kind of like tin tinfoil hat world mm-hmm. where every single person all the millions of people that have voted Conservative I understand their intentions yeah. and I know their background Aye. so you've just said there something that's quite significant which is that law and order is high in your moral matrix right mm-hmm. now everybody has a moral matrix that's unique to them but most people of a certain political persuasion they have the same priorities right mm-hmm. so on the left we believe in law and order but it's not as high as equality or it's mm-hmm. not as high as um, you know diversity uh-huh. Things like that, right? So the conservative moral worldview begins with law and order because no other liberties or equality or diversity can emerge in a society that doesn't have laws that are stuck to. Yes. And so that's the first and foremost point. Then other things like, you know, a lot of conservatives grow up in a time where their experience of the state and state interference is shaped in a time when we're in this big ideological battle with communism, mm-hmm. right? So we've seen what happened in, in the Soviet Union with communism, yeah. and so that was how Britain and America defined itself. So actually being capitalist and no state intervention and power to the individual and empowering mm-hmm. the individual to empower themselves, these things were quite progressive back then, right? Aye. But then because of some of the blowback for capitalism and the inequality, the state had to step back in. You know, look at the situation we've got now. It's like the third sector is the third biggest part of our economy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like the state now has to facilitate all the relationships we used to be able to make organically. You've got mentors and facilitators and all these things just to help people fucking navigate their life. Aye. So as as the political framework, as the political kind of tides move back and forward, people find their beliefs out of fashion. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the left now, you've got a lot of people who regard themselves as the kind of vanguard of feminism and suddenly because of the trans debate, now they get spoken to the way some people talk to Tories. Uh-huh. And so, like, that's why I'm no big on planting my feet in the sand and saying, I know I'm right and I know where we're going, like a lot of people do. Because I've found myself on those friction points where mm-hmm. the sands are shifting very yeah. quickly beneath my feet and having to challenge myself again and say maybe what I thought was happening there wasn't happening there no the people that you get Tories who believe in things like drug addicts who die that's fucking Darwin right Aye. survival of the fittest just say no see all that shit. I've ah. no time for that no patience for that that's where my anger comes from mm. that's where my anger comes from because one thing I've kind of in the last year as I'm getting a bit older um, I've, I've acknowledged really deeply within myself I don't know everything. What I, my anger and my rage towards them comes from that sort of heartlessness and carelessness. A very fucking I'm alright, Jack. You know, well, fuck you. That's Aye. what I, my anger comes from, and that's when I start calling Tories cunts, basically. Aye. So one of the reasons that they take that position is 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 because the implications of compassion means state intervention, mm-hmm. right? So see when you say uh, benefits, say you're talking about benefits and all that, right? That they might not necessarily know have compassion, but they might be saying, I don't see how 
taxing people more and giving them free money mm. is going to help their situation. So again, I would still disagree, but there are lots of instances where I've found that conservatives will be compassionate within certain conditions. Mm-hmm. So conservatives become compassionate when they see somebody that they believe is trying to aspire to something. Uh-huh. Uh, when they see somebody that's trying to make something, right? You know, you get big conservative millionaire donors who will donate to people that are trying to start a business or trying uh-huh. to do something. Uh-huh. The conservative, what they don't like or what they sometimes even hate is the idea of people just expecting something for nothing. Mm-hmm. And what sometimes they misunderstand because of the social circumstances that they grew up in is that not everybody's got a family around them. Not uh-huh. everybody's got a margin for error. Not everybody learns to be emotionally intelligent. Not everybody understands a work ethic and they, they, I think sometimes this country, the problem that we're seeing, one of many problems is we're, we're having this kind of public school, conservative, moral world, mm-hmm. superimposed in communities where people don't have anything to conserve. Uh-huh. And you're going to have a lopsided society. You know, the hostile environment policy, the, the harsh welfare reforms, these are all rooted in tough love, public school, conservative beliefs uh-huh. that if you just make things shite enough, people will avoid them. So they'll no try to come here and they'll no try to access benefits and they'll go and work in an Amazon factory. Now, if you're resilient enough and you've got support around you, then you don't have to come here. You can find work somewhere else Mm -hmm. or you don't have to access benefits. You can just scrape by. But there's a lot of people whose baseline functionality as people is so low that they need that additional help, uh-huh. they need that security, and they need at least to walk into a job centre and not be spoken to like a piece of shit, yeah. and not be made a show of in front of other people. And just now, I think what we're doing is, we're, 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 we're kind of trying to discipline and regiment our population, the vulnerable population, mm-hmm. into a kind of submission that uh, if you're going to get help, you're going to have to jump through all these hoops. All these hoops. We're going to take a spare bedroom allowance off you. We're going to take 50 quid a week off you. Meanwhile, we're not going to tax Amazon, Vodafone, Google, Starbucks. Aye. That, uh, and then that's when I go full circle and I just get Aye. back to pure rage again. Because it's just... We wouldn't have these fucking issues if you would just tax these companies. No. It really is that simple. Aye. And, you know, the, the, one, of the, one of the issues that we tax in the companies, right? So this is what the Conservative would say, right? If you tax these companies, these companies are not as competitive against all the companies that are emerging in mm. these emerging markets where all these jobs are migrating to because production and costs are all lower. Nice. So the argument that they make is then you undermine the competitiveness. But their whole belief system is that the CEOs of these companies would be paying 50% tax and that money would trickle down. Uh-huh. But that's where, no, where is it? It's no happen. Uh-huh. It's no happen. So the thing about that, the, the, the real hypocrisy comes though when people like Theresa May, Boris Johnson, they want to hold people further down the food chain to a standard that they've not even been held to. Yeah. I mean, they're always talking about personal responsibility. When do you ever see them holding their hands up and going, uh-huh. I actually fucked up? Uh-huh. When do they take responsibility for anything? Either on a political, professional or personal level. Exactly. Like, even for a personal level, I mean, the, the fucking, some of the biggest reprobates that the country's ever seen. It's a great Because it almost feels like you shouldn't be able to say it now. Uh-huh. But if you check the definition, 
it's actually okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, fucking right. <laughs> right. It's, it's when like it's when somebody feel like a working class scheme wants to give you an articulate insult one that they've, <laughs> one that they've really thought about. I could call you a specky prick or a fucking stupid cunt, but a reprobate hits that. Or you're buffoon. That's another one. You always aye. hear like. Um, Ned, mad Ned shouting that you're a buffoon what are you you're a fucking buffoon <laughs> <laughs> do you think um, uh, that there's a I'm kind of taking it back because there was a wee train I thought I went on when we were talking about the the guided the counsellors the careers advisors mm. and uh, I'm kind of taking it that'll come back to me because it was a wee bit a bit sort of as you say keeping people stuck and keeping them still and whether that was a sort of way of just Stifling people, even from like an artistic point of view, because I've kind of wait. I made a bit of an answer that question. I know what I wanted to ask it. Welcome back to me. Another thing I wanted to ask you was how, like a sort of summary, briefly, of how your artistic pursuits then started to become a career, because it's not very common, is it? I, um, well, again, it was because it was a mixture of me putting myself in advantageous positions mm-hmm. through working. Right. But also through generosity and kindness and foresight and sometimes even love for other people in the community, you know. Um, mentors are mine. Not necessarily mentor in the professional sense that we mean now. Mm-hmm. People that just take a wee shine to you, you know, they can see you're just a young person that's kind of wayward in the world and you're but, looking up to somebody. But a potential with it. Aye, you? aye. So they give you opportunities, you know what I mean? And they, and, and they trust you for the start, so they're no... They're not trying to uh, give you an opportunity to see if you can fuck it up. They're believing in you, mm-hmm. and that investment of trust means that you respond to that. So yeah. you'll, you see that this thing is valuable and needs to be nurtured. And uh, so that was for me, youth projects where I get to go and, go and make beats and record raps and go and perform. And then that led to me uh, doing my own work independently, releasing my albums myself and... Um, becoming a community practitioner and I studied for a year to do that as well I formalised what I already knew really on a bit of paper um, and and then I just started making many a name for myself uh, not just as a performer in the hip hop scene but somebody who kind of goes beyond that and talks on issues and mm-hmm. speaks about things and I think it's been in the last two or three years that all that work I've done in these separate areas of my life is all quite coalesced mm-hmm. So the audiences are, are, you know, you might have audiences that prefer the writing or some audiences that prefer the public speaking or some that Aye. prefer the music, uh-huh. but they'll all dabble and annoy it from yeah. time to time, you know, some of my content, if I get it just right and I hit that magic sweet spot in the middle of all of them, mm-hmm. the Venn diagram moment, Aye. you know what I mean, then, then a lot of my content, whatever it is, can really fly. Uh-huh. Um, and the fringe is a good place to bring those people together yeah. in a space my audience is very socially diverse also since a book came out it's majority female which is weird for uh, me really aye aye it's weird you know like when you're when you're signing books and all that it's mostly women mostly women in care professions or students that are studying to go into education or people in nursing or youth work in mm-hmm. the third sector so they all have a specific interest in the stuff but that that kind of all these things are really interesting to me because I've always been writing for a young male audience. Yeah. But I realise as I'm getting a bit older and the, the t- topics I want to touch are maybe... I, I don't mean they're too advanced for young people. I mean young people care about their things when they grow up a wee bit more. Aye, aye. 
you know, there's artists out there doing stuff for the younger people. I'm no wanting to be trying to like just fucking beat that with a dead horse. Aye. So there's other content, there's other ways, and taking the rap into a theatre environment's a way to refresh it for me. Because mm-hmm. when people come into a theatre, the expectation is on them to get what's going on, yeah. or they're no sophisticated. <laughs> so when you're bombarding them with rap, they're like, I better understand what's actually going on here uh-huh. and turn my prejudice off, because if I look like I've no understood this, uh-huh. I might look a bit stupid in a theatre. Uh-huh. And uh, when you understand the landscape you're navigating, you can move a lot more strategically. Mm. So I understand what theatre represents to people who attend the theatre. They're not just going because they like theatre, they're going because there's a certain cachet that comes with being a theatre lover. Yeah. Or going to the fringe. It's like a transaction you're making. You're acquiring, I've been to the fringe, as if yeah. it was a handbag or something. Aye, aye. So you can play into all that. Do you know what I mean? And you can understand in certain dynamics where people are uh, underestimating you. You know, like if you're going on Radio 2 or Radio 4 and the presenters for London and they don't even know who you are and they just think you're a bam. Aye. You can really go in consciously aware of, I'm going to surprise everybody here we actually, the fact I've got a lot of experience, yeah. that I know what I'm talking about, and that I know what I'm talking about more than the person that's interviewing me. You know what I mean? And so I think that's what's made the difference in these last three years is really having a clear enough mind, not being full of the bevy, to be more calculated in mm-hmm. the decisions that I make, what energy I expend, doing what. And, uh, and, you know, this year really kind of uh, joined the spoils here and the opportunities that have come. That, um, see you saying the two things, the speaking to people who would maybe perceive you to be a bam or whatever and have a sort of preconceived notion of you, and you going into a theatre or a theatre environment um, which people have already got a set expectation of what they're going to be delivered, and then you start rapping. Mm. That must be like a sort of artistic form of like uh, neurolinguistic practitioner that just Aye. absolutely smashes them in the brain to a point of like fuck I didn't see that it's like blindsiding them and cracking them right in the jaw Aye. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's another pure scheme thing Aye, <laughs> my, my, my show last year pretty much addressed that right Aye. up front so the whole show begins with rapping and a bit of comedy so people think they're coming to see me maybe just reading out the book Aye. And then actually what I've written is a show that's got a narrative and has characters mm-hmm. and I'm playing all these different roles and then I'm honing it back to them and I'm going, you thought you were just coming here to see a mad rapper, didn't you? <laughs> it's interesting how the, the rapper's held to a lower standard than the writer or mm-hmm. the musician, that somehow they're a lower form of intellect. Uh, like I've seen examples of things that like Tupac have written and you're like, fucking hell, like, you're like, who wrote that? And then Aye. it's him at a very young age. So it's just because it's delivered in what would be perceived to be a lower class and I'm saying that way we don't even need to walk around it man in Aye. America it's because he's black Aye. and that's what lower class means in America Aye. do you know what I mean here it doesn't it can mean that mm-hmm. but also we've got a big white working class lower class poverty effects you know because this is we don't have the same yeah, social and racial history necessarily as oh, America. Yeah. Poverty is expressed differently. But it's no surprise that the young white kids that come to the schemes in Scotland relate to African American rappers uh-huh. more than they relate to the poets they're taught in school. Yeah. And they become interested in language and they critically analyse it without even knowing they're doing it. Mm-hmm. If you go into a prison, you don't want to take T.S. Eliot in, at least not on the first day. You want to take in a grime artist, you want to take in Stormzy, you want to take in somebody that they can relate to. Because when you feel a sense of connection to the material you're supposed to study, you forget that you have all these issues about reading, you forget yeah, that you're nervous and that you might have shite handwriting. 
you're just pure in. Just in the content and its meaning. Aye, and before you know it, you're doing it automatically. Mm. Whereas if you put something down on a blank bit of paper and it's some fucking, do you know what I mean, poet that they've never heard of, and it's, it, it, you know what I mean, Robert Browning, My Last Duchess, probably a great poem, do you know what I mean, but totally just, I couldn't, I wasn't fucking interested. I wish, I wish schools would know that. I had a, a music teacher and she'd bring in, like, fucking... I've got a very eclectic taste in music, but she would, when we'd be doing the keyboard, and she would choose songs that she liked for the 60s, and kids would be like, this is pish, all the ones she brought in ABBA, and everybody's like, this is fucking shit, I'm pure tapping away and all that, and I'm like, oh, aye, that was crap, when I hated it. Aye, aye. <laughs> fucking loved it. Flame Dancing Queen. Um, obviously, anybody listening, I will have spoken at length in the intro about your, oh, wait a minute, I ha- I've given away the fourth wall there, that illusion. I have already spoken in the intro about how great the show is and where people can buy tickets and when you're on, but I mean, anything you want to tell us for anybody that, that's listening about what to expect for the show, how much you can give away, where they can get tickets, where, where they can see you and when. Cool. So the show's called Scotland Today and stuff about me being middle class and basically try to tell the story really of how my life has really changed in the last 12 months. Mm. So I've always been known for writing about poverty for a perspective of social exclusion. And actually, I kind of did that this year because <laughs> the seas just parted in front of me when I won the Orwell Prize. And Aye. I have had so many opportunities thrown at me this year that I couldn't actually do them all. Mm-hmm. So I've knocked back more opportunities this year than most people get their whole life. That mm-hmm. is how significant the shift has been for me. And also, that gives me a lot of opportunity to make observations about new areas of society that I've never been exposed to before. Mm-hmm. Travelling in first class, you notice a lot, you know, yeah. about how the people that are adjusted to that lifestyle the sort of expectations they have of their society they don't think that that's a privilege they don't think that's a treat if you were to put them in an economy they would feel really fucking Aye. they would feel like they had been denied something and I've felt that since becoming accustomed to that quality of travel and that's just a metaphor for every aspect of life mm-hmm. and what happens is when you make more money or you get a better job you kind of become you, you moderate yourself a wee bit Right, so you might have been a bit more radical, might have been a bit more opinionated. It starts when you stop swearing in certain circumstances because you know the people you're around might not appreciate bad language. And then it just develops and develops to your political opinions. You might not share a certain political opinion that you've got in a certain context Mm -hmm. because you think this is going to be controversial or somebody might think less of me. And then before you know it, if you've not got an eye on that, and those forces bearing down on you, That's you. you can just become a fanny and not really know how it happened. You become an Uncle Tom. You can become... Oh, an Uncle Tom. Aye, aye, <laughs> an Uncle Tom. You know, but you, you can... It's all right if you're changing in accordance with your own values. Yeah. Or you know that changing something is going to lead to some outcome and you're all right to make that compromise. But see, when you're just on autopilot, yeah. before you know it, you're laughing at people who used to think the way you used to think. Yeah. And you think they're stupid or you think they're unevolved then um, that's a problem and what I've noticed is that also is that even when you have mayor you don't feel like you have mayor because mm-hmm. everybody's doing that thing we talked about earlier yeah, so politics comes to a standstill because we need radical ideas to deal with the poverty we need radical ideas in housing uh, and the environment all across the problems we've got we need more radical ideas that don't start in the status quo uh-huh. but the problem is the people in the middle who look like they've got everything that they already need they don't feel like they've got everything they need. So, when people start talking radical shit, they're like, ah, nah, we'll have to leave you on the margins. <laughs> Hi. Leave you on the fringes. 
and so my show is about my conflict with that mm-hmm. you know what I mean and I've got a number of wee devices that I'm going to use in the show dramatically comedically musically to show that I'm the difficulty with that duality because uh-huh. I'm still me but I can feel forces raining down on me they're not necessarily you don't the Illuminati don't pull you in one day and go right okay <laughs> here's your opinion on Israel Iraq and Tony yeah, Blair uh-huh. if you want your career to move forward yeah, it's more subtle than that mm-hmm. it's the same sort of social signalling that you experience when you're in a scheme mm-hmm. and you know I'll cross the road but I'll not cross the road too soon because I don't want the boys to think I'm a shite bag uh-huh. so maybe I'll go and ask them the time first so they know I'm cool uh-huh. it's the same thing you're responding to social cues and incentives except it's a different social class so you're adjusting to a whole new way of speaking, of thinking, of being, and I think that'll be interesting for both all the demographics that are enjoying my work. It's it's such a test of your your. I was going to say your values, but anybody could be forgiven for wanting to better themselves because that's part of the human condition. Yeah. So I wouldn't say well, you obviously don't believe in that. It's a it's a very fine line. It's I'm really looking forward to seeing the show. I'll be through in Edinburgh for a lot of August. I would urge you you listening if you can if you're at the fringe make this a priority to go and see because with this conversation um, it's gone by this alone it's going to be brilliant I've got one final question for you okay what do you think of people that don't swear I don't trust them I I know I I think it's worse no just when people that don't swear that's tolerable people who have an expectation that I shouldn't swear mm. or who think that I cheapen what I'm saying by swearing yeah. they piss me off it's me too that's true I don't mind people don't, I would never go how come you never swear fucking swear go I, know, like, I just feel like it's a sort of like somebody's really trustworthy I don't know not trustworthy but it's like they're not trying to filter what they're saying it's no pre-packaged it's just aye, coming aye. out like I kind of do it at inappropriate times I did something the other day and I kind of said I was testing a system I was getting paid to test a system for student loans and they showed me a bit of information what do you think about that and it was about interest rates for repayments for student loans down south and I, right. went, I said aye that's a fucking disgrace and then they looked at me like oh this is on record and I was like well sorry how are you? I won't do it again <laughs> but I think it's a fucking disgrace like, aye, if aye. you're ripping people off mate what a pleasure this was it was a real privilege thanks for joining me no problem mate good to meet you bless you too